Well, I hope you appreciated the theme in those songs that we sang this morning. I don't know if you picked it up, but it was really all about God and his character. And uh, I left last week after talking about, do you not know? Have you not heard? There's all these things we know about God. There's always all these things we heard about God. We know them because we read them in scripture. We, we, we know them because we've heard them preached to us or shared with us. And uh, there is nothing more important in our lives than what we think about God. And uh, I was almost uh, going to preach a message about that this morning, um, the most important thing about us, which is, uh, if you remember the classic quote from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so I thought those songs, I guess, preached that message enough this morning, uh, just to remind all of us that, and make sure that we are thinking rightly about God. And there's no more noble study than the study of the character of God, the attributes of God. And it will just bring stability uh, to your life as a Christian um, to to have an accurate view of God. Because at the end of the day, that controls everything in your life is what you think about God. Well, we're not going to talk about that this morning, but that was all for free. I just wanted you to know that I, that I did it, though. I made a decision about what we're going to go through next here on Sunday mornings. And I know you, you remember after we finished Philippians, uh, I asked you to pray with me about what that we might go through next because this is really a defining uh, time for us as a church family. Every Sunday morning, we, we go through, a, a, typically you'll go through a book of the Bible and, and those, uh, those, those series, those, those studies really shape us as believers. They shape us as a church. And so to me, there's no more important decision that, that I make as a pastor than what we uh, go through uh, in God's word. And so I asked you to uh, you know, the request line was open, right? And you could ask me or, or suggest things to me. And I really appreciate all the suggestions. There was really nothing that you suggested that wasn't already on my short list. Um, the book of Revelation, right? Oh, okay, yeah. Guess what? Jesus is coming back. You need to be ready, okay? Um, that, that's the book of Revelation. Um, and, and, and Hebrews was one that, that uh, I've always wanted to teach because it's so Christ-centered, so Christ-focused, uh, which you can never get enough of Jesus, right? And so I uh, had always thought about teaching that. That was one of the ones that was uh, suggested. Um, but another one that was suggested um, quite often was the book of Romans. And um, every time somebody mentioned that, the hair on the back of my neck stood up only because Romans freaks me out. And I've been avoiding Romans for ever since I've been in the ministry, um, but just because... I mean, that's Paul's magnum opus. That is like the ultimate piece of literature that he ever penned. And so honestly, I've kind of been scared off and thought, I need to be a little older before I, I preach that. I mean, that's just like chunky. And I want to make sure I get that right. You don't want to mess that up. So I've just kind of been putting that off um, and, uh, and been collecting commentaries. That was my way of just appeasing my conscience that I was still thinking about it. 
and willing to do it. So I've been collecting commentaries for the last literally 25 years, knowing that I was going to preach Romans someday. And so um, this week I did it. I pulled all those commentaries off my shelf and they're stacked on my desk now. Somebody walked in this morning and said, it looks like you're starting a new library. I'm like, yeah, I got way too many of these things and five more are coming through Amazon Prime this week. And uh, we're going to have to sort through those and, and, and uh, throw a few aside um, or, you know, I'll just get up and read commentaries here on Sunday morning with you because there's just too many great uh, resources uh, for that book. Well, I have to be honest with you that um, I don't know that I made the decision uh, willingly. I was, uh, I feel like I was a little bit forced into it um, several months ago uh, after a man up breakfast, one of my dear friends in our church um, cornered me and said, Ken, you need to teach Romans. And then he said this, Ken, can you imagine dying and have never preached Romans? You're 50 years old, man. You're running out of time. I mean, he really put the screws down on me. I was like, I felt like uh, uh, maybe a little bit of what John Calvin felt like when, when William Farrell uh, got a hold of him when he was passing through Geneva. And John Calvin, as you know, was a, a brilliant theologian, a brilliant uh, author, writer. And uh, he wanted to go, I think it was, uh, you know, over uh, to Germany in a kind of a quiet place. Um, uh, I guess it was more, more in the Swiss, Swiss area. Um, he wanted to go and just, and just kind of live out the Reformation. I mean, the Reformation was, we're, we're, we're celebrating the Reformation this year, right? The 500th anniversary. It was in full swing. And, and it was just spreading like rapid fire, you know, like wildfire across Europe. And so he wanted to go and, and, and just kind of write and use his gift in writing and just kind of write literature for, to kind of promote the Reformation, the Reformation theology. And so one night he had to pass through Geneva to get to his end location. And, and uh, there was a guy there named William Farrell who was kind of leading the, the Reformation there in, in that, in that, in that uh, strategic city. And he, he, he pulled uh, Calvin aside and said, you've got to stay here and help us. And, and John Calvin said, no, I, I'm going to go, and I feel like God's called me and gifted me to write, and I'm just going to go over and kind of, you know, have kind of a quiet life and seclusion and write. And, and Phil, William Farrell came back and said, I'm going to pray that God's going to curse your ministry if you do that. You're needed here in Geneva. And of course, the rest is history, right? You, you can't think about Geneva without thinking about John Calvin, because he, he, he decided to stay um, or maybe it was more he was compelled to stay, and uh, God used th that man in that city uh, for significant things. In fact, his, his impact, his influence, his imprint uh, is still on that city today, uh, even as secular as it is. Um, and so I, I am thankful for that brother who, who kind of did me the Will Ferrell move um, and uh, got me really thinking about Romans. And so uh, I am looking forward to, uh, I just did, started doing some preliminary reading uh, this week, and uh, it's really exciting to, to kind of wade slowly into that, that great uh, book. And so, Lord willing, we'll, we'll plan on starting that together after Labor Day, kind of when we get things uh, back up and running and uh, everything else launched and, and going. We'll, we'll dive into that book this fall and, and uh, see what the Lord will do in the life of our, uh, in our lives and the life of our, our church. 
And in the meantime, uh, there's, a, there's a couple other things we're going to get to do. Shannon Hurley's going to be here one Sunday, and we're going to let him uh, share from the pulpit uh, a message from God's Word. And um, we've got some things we want to talk about related, related to grow groups starting back up again um, on Labor Day. So we've got a couple weeks here today and next Sunday. And uh, I thought uh, what I'd like to do is, is just take these next two Sundays to go back to the very first book I ever taught as a senior pastor when I came here to Texas. And it's the book of James. And uh, James um, really was a defining study for my life. It was a defining study for this church. Um, this, this church is in existence today because of the book of James. And so obviously we don't have time to cover the entire book in, in uh, the next two weeks, but I thought it would be good for us just to go back to the opening verses of the book of James because here we find probably some of the most helpful, practical uh, truths uh, regarding trials, um, which we all face uh, all the time. And uh, I thought it would be good just to go back over these verses and, and I trust be encouraged by what the, what the Lord's um, used James to communicate here. And so take your Bibles and just turn to the book of James. And I want to just read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Again, these are verses that are very familiar to you. I'm sure that uh, some of you even have uh, some of these verses, if not this entire passage memorized. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. And here's our text. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Father, thank you for this significant section of your word. So much truth here for our lives. I pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds to understand what James meant by what he said in these verses and that the spirit would apply these truths to our lives so that we could live in a manner that's pleasing to you, that we could be mature and complete, lacking nothing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what a difference a day can make. Any one of us could wake up on any given morning, and by the time that the day is over, something unforeseen happens that alters our lives forever. 
Over the past week or so, I've been reading several articles on the internet about the 50th anniversary of the diving accident of the most well-known quadriplegic in the world. Of course, I'm referring to Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you, I'm sure, uh, have read some of those articles. Uh, The Gospel Coalition had an article about her desiring God. John Piper's ministry had an article about her. Christianity Today had an article about her. And it all happened on a perfect Saturday. In her own words, it was the perfect Saturday. In the summer of 1967, this ambitious, athletic 17-year-old girl dove off a floating dock in the Chesapeake Bay and hit the bottom and broke her neck and has been confined to a wheelchair ever since. And yet even though she hasn't had the use of her hands and legs for over uh, half a century, by God's grace, Johnny is still walking with Jesus and counting in all joy. The one article that caught my eye more than any other was the one that John Piper put out on his Desiring God website. And the title was this, In All of Her God, Johnny's 50 Years of Counting Quadriplegia Joy. I mean, just that title alone. 50 Years of Counting Quadriplegia Joy. And the article just highlighted her, her godly response to, these, to, 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 to her life-altering trial. Now, few, if any of us, will ever have to deal with a trial as severe as what Johnny has had to deal with her, her entire life. But, but life has a way of throwing us a curveball from time to time, doesn't it? A curveball. We understand what that means, right? It's some unexpected problem, uh, situation, some twist in life that comes out of nowhere, typically throws us off our game, leaves us baffled as how to hit it or how to handle it. For example, your, your boss calls you into the office and, and rather than give you the promotion that you were expecting, you suddenly found yourself without a job. That's a curveball. Or you go to the doctor to to just have a routine checkup only to have them report that your, your blood work reveals that you have cancer and you need to start treatment immediately. That's a curveball. Or you give birth to a long-awaited child, but when the nurse hands them to you for the first time, you notice there's something obviously wrong with them. It's a curveball. Or you think you're happily married when you're Spouse sits you down and tells you they've been having an affair or that they want to get a divorce. That's a curveball. Or your teenager who has gone to church their entire life and and, and seemed to be walking with the Lord confesses to you that they're addicted to drugs or they're pregnant or they're gay. These are all curveballs that you typically don't see coming. You fill in the blank. I'm sure you've got, all got a, a curveball experience or more than one experience from your life. If you don't, you will. It's only a matter of time. No one faced a, a nastier curveball than Job. 
One morning, this, this godly man rose up early to worship the Lord and to intercede for the spiritual well-being of his 10 children, just like he did every morning. But by the end of the day, all his children were dead. All his flocks were stolen by raiders. All his possessions were destroyed by fire and his entire body was covered with painful boils. Job lost more in one day than most of us will lose in a lifetime. The only thing he didn't lose was his wife. And based on the counsel that he gave, that she gave him to curse God and die, he may have wished he had lost her too, I don't know. But instead of cursing God, Job chose to bless God for all the bad things that happened to him. And his initial response to, to this unspeakable tragedy was, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. He went on to exhort his wife, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Job's friends, while they were well-intentioned, weren't much help either. Their compassion and comfort was short-lived. And after sitting in silence with him for seven days, they began to counsel Job and, 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 and really challenge him regarding why he was suffering, which naturally put him on the defensive. And so for 35 chapters in the book of, of Job, they debated the age-old question, why do people suffer? And finally, God had enough of their ignorant discussion and he arrived in this whirlwind and he interrupted Job and his friends. And he immediately deflected their attention off the reason for Job's suffering and redirected it to where it needed to be and that was on Job's response to the suffering. And so through a series of rhetorical questions and, and powerful descriptions regarding his power, his sovereignty in creation, God essentially leveled this question to Job. Where were you? Where were you when I displayed my power and my sovereignty in creating the world? In other words, who do you think you are to question me or try to understand my grand design in, in anything, let alone suffering? And as you know, Job immediately humbled himself and, and repented, and, and through it all, Job learned a valuable lesson about suffering which all of us need to learn as well. And that is this, when faced with trials, instead of focusing on the reason for the trial, we need to focus on our response to the trial. Instead of trying to figure out why we're suffering, we need to learn to simply trust that God is sovereignly, wisely, lovingly working out everything in our lives for his glory and our good. Seems like I'm continually commending the book Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. I mentioned it last week and somebody walked out from church and said, yeah, I have that, that book on my nightstand and it's my second Bible. And the reason why I have it there is because I don't trust God. And I need to be reminded daily to trust God. I think why it's hard for us to trust God is because his purpose and plan for our lives, his ways of working things out for our good, for his glory, are frequently beyond our ability to understand. We just can't figure it out. I mean, how could Job know that, 
the behind the scenes, God was teaching a, a Satan a much needed lesson that, that, that Satan had picked a fight with, with God, essentially. How was he to know that? There was something going on in the spirit world that he had no clue about. And this lesson, I think, that God was teaching Satan and he was using Job to teach Satan that lesson is this, that when a true believer faces trials, they'll respond with persevering faith. The point of the book of Job is not why did Job suffer, but, but why did Job worship God? See, Satan had challenged the, the genuineness of Job's relationship with God. He, he thought the only reason that, that Job worshiped God was because God had blessed him so much. So in order to prove the genuineness of, Job, of Job's faith in him, God gave Satan permission to do whatever he wanted to Job. Skin for skin. Just don't take his life. But even after... Satan let all hell break loose, destroying every aspect of, of Job's life. Job continued to worship God, and his response was one of complete confidence in God as he was faced with a series of, of curveballs, one right after another. It wasn't just like one curveball every 10 years. I mean, this was in, all in one day. But Job knew that Adversity was, was a normal, natural part of life. He said, man is born for adversity as sparks fly upward. You start a, for, you start a fire, right? A campfire, what's gonna happen? You're gonna have sparks going up and that's just man's life. Man was born for adversity. Life is short-lived and full of turmoil, turmoil, he said. And yet in spite of all the adversity that Job faced, he expressed his unconditional commitment to God with these profound words. He says, though he slay me, I will yet hope in him, Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, even if he kills me, I'm gonna still hope in him. And so the bottom line of, of Job's story is this, the way he responded to trials in his life proved to Satan the genuineness of his relationship with God. And the same principle applies to you and it applies to me, how we respond to trials in our lives is one of the greatest tests of the genuineness of our relationship with God. It's easy to come here and worship God and sing songs and joyfully engage with one another when everything in your life's going great. But what's it like when life gets hard? See, our, our, our response to life's trials proves whether our faith is genuine or counterfeit, whether it's real or whether it's fake. And that's what James was getting at here in the opening verses of, of his letter to Jewish believers who had been scattered all over the world as a result of persecution. That's what he meant when it says to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. Greetings. He was, he was talking to Jewish believers who had been scattered all over Asia Minor due to persecution for their faith in Christ. They'd been driven from their homes. They had been separated from their families. They were being oppressed by evil employers 
who weren't giving them their proper due. They were being treated with hostility by the Gentiles for being Jews, and they were being persecuted by the Jews for being Christians. And they were surrounded by trials on all sides. They were coming at them from all directions, curveballs from every direction. And so in the midst of this distressing situation, James wrote to them and told them how to properly respond to the trials that they faced. And so here we have in these 11 verses, six ways we should respond when life throws us a curve. Six ways we should respond when life throws us a curve. And we're going to look at the first three this morning, and Lord willing, next Sunday we'll look at the last three. So the first way that we need to respond, James says, when life throws us a curve, is to have a joyful attitude. Is to have a joyful attitude. Notice what he says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That word trials is the Greek word parosmos, which means to test, to prove, uh, or to try. And uh, just so you know, this is a neutral word in the, in the Greek, um, and it could be translated either trial or temptation, depending on the context. Uh, here in verses 2 through 12, the context is clearly uh, about tests from without, and, and so it's translated trials, but the very same word parosmos is introduced again in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, that's the word parosmos, same exact word, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And so these are tests from within. And so if the context is more uh, regarding tests from within, that, that's more of a temptation. But here in these opening verses, the, the focus is on trials from without, tests from without. So it's, it's translated trials. So trials are anything that puts a person to the test. It's any kind of adversity you can imagine that could be considered a trial. And notice he, he, he says... Uh, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, literally multicolored trials, when you encounter a kaleidoscope of trials. That's a good description of some of your lives. There's some folks that we've had the privilege of ministering to over the years, and sometimes I just sit back and go, Lord, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, it seems like they just have one bad thing after another just happened to them. And it's like, Lord, what in the world? I, I don't get it. You're encountering a kaleidoscope of, of trials. It's interesting, that word various is where we get our word polka dot. And so the idea here is of our life being splattered with, with trials of all different shapes and sizes and colors. It might be a layoff or a hurricane. It's hurricane season, right? We know that. We're all waiting for the next big one, right? The stock market to crash or, or tornado. Uh, the death of a loved one, a, a terminal illness, your house gets flooded, you go through a divorce or have a miscarriage or have a car accident or you fail a test or you get cut from your team, maybe you have a rebellious teenager or 
you're experiencing some kind of persecution or injustice or maybe you just have some unfilled expectations and or maybe you got a stain on your new dress or you got a rip in your favorite pair of jeans. I mean, this is the polka dotted various multicolored types of trial, big and small. And, and, and all of these, the common denominator is that they, they come on us unexpectedly. We didn't see it coming. We weren't planning for it. And that's inherent in the word encounter. He says, consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. Literally, when you fall into various trials. This word encounter is used only two other times in the New Testament. It's used in Luke chapter 10, verse 30, in the story of the Good Samaritan when the man unexpectedly fell among robbers. It's used also in Acts 27, verse 41, talking about that shipwreck that Paul experienced. And it talks about how the ship unexpectedly hit a sandbar and broke apart. Both of these images paint a vivid picture of what trials are like. We're, we're, we're just taking a pleasant walk down the road of life and then suddenly we're ambushed by a group of thugs who, who surround us and, and strip us and beat us and leave us for dead. That's kind of how trials work sometimes. Or we're just sailing across the, the glassy ocean of life and all of a sudden our boat jerks to a stop and, and the crashing waves begin to rip apart our, our life and we end up in the water hanging onto a piece of wreckage for dear life. That's kind of what trials are like, aren't they? The harsh reality is that there's no way to avoid encountering these types of bad situations. At some point in life, we must all face them. Notice what he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, if you encounter various trials. Is that what your Bible says? What does your Bible say? When? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not if. James assumed that we will face trials. And he was not just referring to the possibility of trials, but the inevitability of them. Trials are, are, are normal. They're, they're a natural part of life. They're unavoidable. It's impossible to escape them. We're like Pilgrim in his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city in, in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's classic work, right? I mean, all, that guy, man, all sorts of bad stuff happened to that dude. Well, it's a great analogy of the Christian life. That's the Christian life. And you continue to persevere. And so we shouldn't be surprised when, when trials come. We shouldn't be caught off guard, if you will. We, we should expect them to come, especially if we're Christians. Turn over just to the next book of the Bible, Peter, 1 Peter. He has quite a bit to say about trials. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he says, beloved, he's addressing believers. And so he says, listen, beloved, this is 1 Peter 4, 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. He's writing again to persecuted Christians. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. I love verse 19. 
Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In other words, it is God's will that we suffer trials. And Peter said to rejoice. It's exactly what James said. He said to respond to, to trials in the same way. Notice he says, consider it all joy. Deem it, reckon it. Make a deliberate decision to respond to trials with an attitude of joy. And notice he adds the little word there, all joy. In other words, consider it joy, no, or consider it some joy, no. Consider it mostly joy, no. Consider it what? All joy. Complete joy. Joy that's unmixed with any other emotion. Joy should be our only response to trials. In other words, we shouldn't worry, whine, complain, groan, moan, have a pity party, get mad, get bitter, get depressed, get, get frustrated, feel discouraged, withdraw. All of these are sinful responses to trials. To respond to trials in any other way than with an attitude of joy is disobedience to God. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. Let me give you some advice for life. Let me give you a helpful tip to how to respond when life throws you a curveball. Hit it out of the park. I did a little search on what the world says about when life throws you a curve, and they give all this cheesy advice, you know. This is not just some cheesy advice. This is a command a divine command from God to consider it all joy whenever we encounter various trials. And what's so ironic about this is trials are the very things that tend to rob us of what? Our joy. But James said that trials, no matter how difficult they are, should never cause us to lose our joy. You say, seriously, Ken, come on, man. Are you, how is that possible? How is it possible to always respond in a joyful manner when we encounter the trials that we face in life? How is that possible? Well, I think it's important to drill down a little bit here and, and ask ourselves what James wasn't saying. What, what, what James was not saying. James didn't say enjoy your trials. He doesn't say that. This is not some masochistic, hey, you know, you just need to be like, bring it on. I like it. This, this masochistic, I, I enjoy pain, I enjoy persecution, I enjoy suffering, or, or this is not, uh, he was, wasn't advocating castor oil Christianity. The, the, the older folks in the church will understand that. Analogy, the castor oil, right, was that, 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 that stuff that you would take, you know, when you were sick, and oh, give them castor oil. And it was like, oh, man, I don't want to drink that stuff. But the whole point was that the, the, the worse it tastes, the better it must be for me. I guess a modern version of that would be thieves, for those of you that are into that stuff. Me and the kids have learned not to tell mom when we have a sore throat. Because out comes the thieves and we, we run because the whole house smells like it and we're like, ugh, 
there's that stuff, you know, so it's kind of this, this the worse it tastes, the better it must be for me. James wasn't telling us here to suck it up. Suck it up, man. Ignore the pain, grin and bear it. He's not telling us to say, to walk around, hey, guess what? I have cancer. Isn't that wonderful? That's not what he's saying. He's not giving us a, hey, look on the bright side, pep talk here. He's, he's not advocating the power of positive thinking. He's not, not telling us to deny the pain and the sorrow that we feel. He's not, not encouraging us to act like everything's okay. Some of you that know me a little bit better you pick up on a little phrase I say from time to time. If I walk up to you or walk by you and say, hey, how you doing? And, and, I, and I don't say, oh, I'm doing good. Or, hey, fine, thanks for asking. Or, but I might say, I'm growing and learning. I'm growing and learning. And if you ever hear me say that, that means, oh, Ken's going through some kind of trial. He's dealing with it, something in his life. He's growing and learning. But that's a way I've tried to put into practice. I'm not gonna, well, you know what? My life really stinks right now. And, and uh, boy, this is real, all these bad things are happening to me and, and just kind of bemoaning all these things. Or, oh, you know, I'm great. Fake, plastic, cheesy smile, right? That's not real. So be real. Hey, you know what? You ask me how I'm doing, I'm growing and learning. I'm growing and learning. And I know that's what's going on and we're gonna see that as we move through this text a little bit further that we know that that's always the case, that, that, that whatever it is that we're going through, God is using it to grow us and to teach us things that we'll, we couldn't learn any, any other way. And so what, what was James saying here? We just talked about what he wasn't saying, but what was he saying? There's a difference between enjoying our trials and having joy in our trials. Big difference. And what I think James was saying here is that our joy should not be a superficial emotion based on our circumstances. True Christian joy is a permanent, deep down sense of peace and well-being based on our total confidence that God is in perfect control of everything and no matter how bad things may seem, we know he's always up to something good. That's a little definition of of joy, by the way. Let me say that again. True Christian joy is a permanent, deep down sense of peace and well-being based on our total confidence that God is in perfect control of everything in our lives. And no matter how bad things may seem, we know he's always up to something good. Romans 8, 28, for God works all things together for what? Good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And, and so when life throws you a curve, Respond to it with a joyful attitude. Because as we've heard so many times, attitude is everything. Years ago, I received a little poster from Chuck Swindoll's ministry. And uh, it just had the word across the top, attitude. And uh, I loved the quote so much, I had it hung on my wall above my desk for years. And this is what it said. Quote, words can never adequately convey the incredible impact of our attitude toward life. The longer I live, the more convinced I become that life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we respond to it. And that's a great line. Life is 10% what happens to us and 90% of how we respond to it. 
He says, I believe the single most significant decision I can make on a day-to-day basis is my choice of attitude. It is more important than my past, my education, my bankroll, my successes or failures, fame or pain, what other people think of me or say about me, my circumstances or my position. Attitude keeps me going or it cripples my progress. It alone fuels my fire or assaults my hope. When my attitudes are right, there's no barrier too high, no valley too deep, no dream too extreme, and no challenge too great for me. What a challenging quote. And so we need to have a a joyful attitude in response to the curveballs of life. Secondly, the second way we need to respond when life throws us a curve is, is, is with an understanding mind. We need to have an understanding mind. We need to have a joyful attitude, but we also have to have an understanding mind. Notice what it says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Verse three, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so here James provided us the reason why we should rejoice in trials. If you're still kind of getting over that going, whoa, I'm still back in verse two. Can I got to get my mind around this? Exactly. You do need to get your mind around this. And that's his point in verse three. Knowing. That's a mind word, right? Knowing. And, and by the way, that's a, what's called a present participle in the Greek language, which means it supports the verb that's come before it. And the main verb, the main command is consider it all joy. And what uh, uh, the, the role of a participle, it, it comes alongside a verb and, and shows you how to do it. How, how am I going to do that command? A good example would be in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, where it says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded. The main verb in that passage is what? Make disciples. Okay, so how do we do that? Well, we go, that's a participle, and then we baptize, baptizing, that's a participle, and then we teach. That's a, so these are all supportive words and saying, let me show you how to make disciples. So now James is saying, let me show you how to consider all joy. It starts by knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I think James knew that at, at first it might sound a little irrational when, when the Jewish brethren read this. They, they might have scratched their head a little bit and, and, and to consider joy, consider trials a joyful thing. It's, that doesn't seem very rational. Well, it is actually very rational. It's very logical. Rejoicing in trials comes from knowing something about trials. If you want to rejoice in the trials, you need to know something about trials. And so what does he say? Knowing. Again, this this knowing here is a knowledge based on experience. And it's hard at times and usually impossible to understand what God's doing when, when we're in the midst of a trial. But oftentimes after a trial's over, we are able to look back and see maybe some of the things that God wanted to accomplish in our lives as a result of it. And, and, and so what, are, what have we learned? All of us have learned this. Oh, we know this by our own experience, 
particularly those who are older and those who have lived longer, right? We know that God uses trials to test and build up our faith in him. Don't you know that? that, Hasn't that been your experience? Notice he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That that the word there for testing of your faith is dakamazo. It's a word you probably have heard before. It means to, to test, again, to prove, to try. Um, it had the idea of testing to prove whether or not something was genuine. It was used of coins and, and metals. In fact, archaeologists in the Near East have unearthed ancient pieces of pottery with this word, dakamazo, written on the underside of that pottery. And this was to signify that that piece of pottery had gone through the furnace without cracking. It had been tested. It had been approved. Well, you know that we are likened to earthen vessels or clay pots by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We're a piece of pottery that the Lord is working on. And whenever we go through a trial, whether it's an illness or the death of a loved one or some financial crisis or, or family emergency of some kind, it's like we're, we're placed on a conveyor belt that passes through a fiery furnace. And there we are. We're going through it. And it feels really slow at the time, right? It's like, can you speed this up a little bit? I want to get out of here as quick as possible. And the intense heat of adversity bears down upon us and the true nature of our faith is revealed in those trials. What we're made of really comes out. And the purpose of that trial is is not to crack our faith, but to refine it, to purify it so we come out the other side stronger and brighter than when we went into that trial. Job said it this way in Job 23.10, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as what? As gold. Again, just turn a couple pages to the right to 1 Peter. This time, chapter 1. Just a couple pages over there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. There it is again. We're to be rejoicing. Guess what's coming next? Probably something about trials, right? In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we're to rejoice during these opportunities where our faith is being proved, is being tested. And we'll come to the place where someday we will experience the the glory of heaven. Because we've demonstrated by the way we respond to the trials of life that we are actually true believers, that we're truly saved. Some of you may remember a singer named Steve Green. He's not so well-known today as he was back when I was growing up, but just a very godly man, uh, son of uh, missionary parents. And one of his uh, songs that, that I've never forgotten is called The Refiner's Fire. The Refiner's Fire. It's a great song. You could probably find it on YouTube. I didn't try to look, but let me just read for you the lyrics of this profound song. It goes like this, there burns a fire with sacred heat, white hot with holy flame. 
And all who dare pass through its blaze will not emerge the same. Some is bronze, some is silver, some is gold. Then with great skill, all are hammered by their sufferings on the anvil of his will. You ever feel like you're getting hammered? And God's doing the hammering? Well, that's why. You're, you're on the anvil of his will. Second verse, I'm learning now to trust his touch, to crave the fire's embrace. For though my past was sin is etched, his mercies did erase. Each time his purging cleanses deeper, I'm not sure that I'll survive, yet the strength in growing weaker keeps my hungry soul alive. You ever feel like, I'm not gonna make it through this one. This one's more than I can handle, right? But it just continues to, to, to keep you hungry for the Lord. Last verse, the refiner's fire has now become my sole desire. That's like, hey, who's, who wants to go through the furnace? Sign me up. I'll go first. Are you crazy? What's your problem? The refiner's fire has now become my sole desire, purged and cleansed and purified, that the Lord be glorified. He is consuming my soul, refining me, making me whole. No matter what I may lose, I choose the refiner's fire. Wow, that's profound faith. And it just reminds us that the, the refining process that we go through during a trial produces greater strength, greater endurance. That's the point, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? What does your Bible say? might say perseverance, right? Mine says endurance. Hupomeno, to abide or remain under. That's what that word endurance means. So the idea here is being under some heavy burden and instead of trying to escape it, you, you dig in and you continue to carry it. You tough it out, you, you stick to it. You don't wimp out, you don't give up. And so James was, was talking about staying power here, resisting the, the urge to quit to refuse to collapse under the weight of the trial. I've been experiencing this in my workouts, that you've got to start with small weight, right? Like, there's some folks that come to our gym that was, they used to go to CrossFit, and they're like, squatting so much weight like the bar's bending and I'm like whoa that's like looks like on the Olympics man there's like there, this is like your morning workout relax not the Olympics and I'm over there literally with a white plastic PVC pipe just trying to learn how to squat again as a 50 year old man right and and uh and I'm like okay this is really humbling but guess what? It's a process. And you start with small weights and you begin to work up to heavier weights. And you just keep adding a little more weight, a little more weight, a little more weight. And, and, and struggling under that new weight is painful at times. But if you endure the pain there, your strength and your stamina grows over time. You build muscle, right? What do they say? No pain, no gain. That, that applies to our spiritual lives. And by struggling under the weight of trials, which is, which is painful at times, it is, but it slowly, it eventually, inevitably develops our spiritual strength and our stamina. 
And like the people at, at the gyms you may go to where you work out, every one of those people is at a different level of strength. All of us here are, are at a different level of spiritual strength. And, and God acts like a, a personal trainer who, who customizes our workout to fit our endurance level. So Aaron's like, hey, Ken, while everybody else does this, you go over to the corner and you play in the corner over here and you do what you got to do over here. I'm joking, but essentially that's what, you know, you have a personal trainer who customizes your workout to fit your endurance level. And, 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 and as any good trainer, they, they slowly increase your weight, right? So you grow stronger. And so God increases our trials. So we go stronger. And when we pass a small test, he, he gives us a bigger test but the hope is he'll never give us a test that's too much for us to handle. He knows. I've had Aaron tell me, hey, you can lift that. Go ahead, do it. And I try to do it and I can't do it. <laughs> like, sorry, bro, to let you down. Um, but that never happens to God. Guess what? God never puts too much weight on the bar. Never. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 what does it say? No temptation or trial, parasma, same word, has overtaken you, but that which is common to men. And God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted, what? Beyond what you're able. But with every trial, with every temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so you can, what? What does it say? Endure it. Endurance is a, is a key concept for the Christian life. Hebrews 12, just look a page over. It might be on this very same page. You don't have to turn anything. Just look to the left. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with what? Endurance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. James 5, the last chapter of James, just turn over there really quick. James 5.11, love what, James says here as he's wrapping up, kind of going back to his original thought, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So when life throws us a curve, we need to respond to it with an understanding mind. We need to understand, we need to know that God uses trials to build up our endurance. That's what he's up to. And he, by his grace, he is faithful to provide a way of escape so we can endure it. Then thirdly, and we'll just look at this quickly here, the third way that we need to respond to a trial, we not only do we have to have a joyful attitude and an understanding mind, we need to have a submissive will. We need to have a submissive will. Notice verse four. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Did you notice? Let. It's a word of submission. Let endurance have its perfect 
result. This is a, a present active imperative. This is, this is another way you could say is let it keep on working on you. That's what this is talking about. This is an, an ongoing command. Allow it to take its course, to complete its job, to accomplish its purpose in your life. In other words, trials work for us and we shouldn't work against them. We should work with them. And so James was commanding us to submit to the trials that God sends our way. Instead of fighting against them, we need to willingly accept them and endure them. We need to treat them as friends, not enemies. There's an old Steve Camp song called He Covers Me, and one of the lines says this, though the trials never end, I've learned to take them as my friends. I think the idea here is cooperation. When we, when we cooperate with God, it makes trials a whole lot easier. You may have had or still have a, a stubborn, strong-willed child, right, that wasn't the easiest to discipline. And um, there we are trying to help them learn to obey, and, and, and oftentimes they respond stubbornly, and they they work against us as parents and not with us and they fuss and they whine and they protest and they argue and they, they wiggle and they squirm and they ride to escape your grip when you're ready to spank them and they even put their hands on their bottom, right, so you can't inflict pain down there and, and, and man, this is all work and, 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 and I mean, I, I'm not gonna tell you which one of my kids I'm talking about. They know. But whenever it came time for a spanking, I mean, it wasn't a quick, like, hey, we'll just be in and out in five minutes I mean, we were in there for 20 minutes, half an hour, and we would both come out sweating. It was an ordeal. And, and whenever I got done spanking her, I would, <laughs> I, I, would, I would hold her in my arms and say, sweetheart, it doesn't have to be this hard. We could have been out of here in three minutes. You could have been back playing, jumping on the trampoline, doing whatever you want to do, but no. You had to fight. And, and so I would just say, listen, the, the less you fight, the less painful it's going to be. But the more you fight, the more painful it's going to be for you. And I would typically end by just reminding her how important it was to be sweet and submissive. That's a good thing for a little girl to learn, right? James was saying the same thing here. We need to submit our stubborn little will to God's will as he disciplines and trains us by the trials that he ordains for our lives. It's just all part of growing up. Notice he says, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect, the word teleon there in the Greek, which means perfection or maturity, that you might be mature, fully grown, fully developed, and complete, entire, have all your parts. This, this was used to describe an animal that was without blemish. There was nothing missing. Everything in your life is in good working order. And I love this last phrase. He says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Literally, not being left behind by another. In other words, there wouldn't be there would be nothing left out or missing in your life. No area in your life being outpaced by another area in your life. There's, there's no part of your life lagging behind the others. It 
Paul prayed this for people in, in, in the churches that he planted in 1 Thessalonians 3.10. He talked about how he prayed night and day most earnestly that I might see your face and complete what is lacking in your faith. So let's just be honest, right? There, all of us have areas in our faith that are lacking. We're, we're, we're not all that God would have us to be. There's areas that we, we need to grow and become more mature and complete. And so God is constantly working on us. And trials are his primary tools to grow and develop us into the image of Christ. And, and God's ultimate goal, we know, for every Christian is to conform us to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29. And he's committed to do whatever it takes to make us complete in Christ. And trials are the means that he's ordained to help us become spiritually strong and mature. Listen, bottom line, we will never fully develop into who God wants us to be unless we go through trials. I think... All of us, if we were honest, would say, I am who I am today because of the trials and the suffering that I've experienced. One of my fondest memories as a child was coming across a, a butterfly emerging from a cocoon or, or even just a cocoon on a little branch and Whenever I found one of those, I would, I would just carefully break off that branch and I would come home and I would put it in a jar and stick it in there kind of sideways and, and we would watch for the next few days that butterfly emerge from the cocoon. It was just a fascinating thing for me as a child. Well, I read a story about a young boy who, who witnessed the same amazing transformation and when the butterfly started to, to break out of his cocoon, the boy noticed how hard it was struggling to, to free itself, and the process was agonizingly slow, and in an effort to help, he reached down and widened the opening of the cocoon. And sure enough, the butterfly quickly emerged, but its wings were all crumpled and all shriveled, and something was wrong. The, the butterfly that, that, that should have spread its wings and, and flown away could only helplessly crawl around on the ground because its wings hadn't fully developed. And what the, the unintended boy had not realized was that the struggle to get out of the cocoon was essential for the butterfly's muscle system to develop. That's just how God designed it. And, and, and so in his misguided effort to relieve this God-designed struggle, he had crippled the butterfly from ever becoming the beautiful creature that God created it to be. I think the trials of life are are much like that cocoon of a butterfly. God uses the, the struggles, the challenges that we go through to develop our, our spiritual muscle system. And adversity is, is essential to our growth as Christians, but when we face adversity, what do we typically do? Like that boy who, who was unaware of the necessity of the struggle, what did he do? He, he, we want God to relieve us from it. Lord, take this away from us. Make it easier for us. And yet God in his wisdom knows that to remove that adversity from our lives would cripple us and keep our character from ever becoming fully developed. 
And so God wisely and and lovingly uses adversity to strengthen us and ultimately transform us into the beautiful image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when life throws us a curve, we need to respond to it with a submissive will. We need to let endurance have its perfect result so that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for not only explaining to us how to respond to the trials of life, but also empowering us to do it through your spirit who dwells within us. Lord, this this text is impossible for us to do in our own strength. It's not natural, it's not normal for us to respond this way, but that's why you gave your spirit to, to believers to help us, to put into practice, to apply these hard passages of scripture. And so Lord, we pray that with your Spirit's help, you would cause us to embrace trials as our friends and that you would use them to fill up what is lacking in our faith so that we'll be mature and complete, lacking nothing and be as much like Jesus as humanly and earthly possible, we pray. In his name, amen.